Amen. All right. It's now time for the message. This will not be nearly as interesting or tense as Matt's announcements today. (laughs) No, we're actually going to jump right in. We've got a fairly robust uh, outline to dig through today as we continue our journey through the Gospel of Luke. So pull out your Bibles, turn to Luke chapter 14. Um, Jesus is going to be talking with us this morning about what it means to be a disciple What it means to follow him, to be a follower of Jesus, to be a person who receives and embraces the kingdom life. That's the message that he has for us. And this morning, Jesus is going to answer four questions about this um, in our passage. And here they are. First, we're going to talk about what does following Jesus entail? What is it? What does it sort of encapsulate? What does it look like? Number two, how should we consider following Jesus in light of what it is? Number three, why is careful consideration so important? And then finally, who is consideration for? Who is offered um, the gift and was given an invitation to come and follow Jesus? So here we go. Luke chapter 14, starting in verse 25. Large crowds were traveling with Jesus, and turning to them, he said, If anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. And right out the gate here, uh, Jesus is, is letting us know, he's showing us the comprehensive nature of following him. He's, he's telling us just how radically intrusive the kingdom is. And he turns to this crowd, this large group of people that are just kind of cruising along, enjoying themselves, enjoying Jesus, his teaching, sort of feeling like this must be some sort of a parade when in fact... Um, Little do they know they're actually part of a funeral procession. And Jesus turns to correct them and to challenge them. And he says, no, this is not what it's about. Following me is not just about going along for the ride when things are good and easy and at a high point. There's something so much more than that. And that's actually the first thing we learn about what following Jesus entails. We're going to learn three things about this first point. First of all, following Jesus we're told, requires our complete surrender. Jesus says, If anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, such a person cannot be my disciple. This is Jesus. This is black and white Jesus. This is line in the sand Jesus. There are no perhapses. There are no, like escape clauses. There are no sort of secret entrances into the kingdom. He says, here's how it is. This way or that way. And, and what's shocking right off the bat here is... What actually Jesus goes after? What he uses here to make his point? Do you see what he goes after here? Do you see what it is? It's, it's not drugs. It's not sexual promiscuity. He doesn't attack murder or lying or cheating or greed or some secret sin that you're harboring in your heart. He doesn't go after any of those things. Instead, Jesus hones in on family. Why would Jesus challenge family with so many things in the world that he could go after, that he could challenge, that he could rebuke, and yet he picks family. Here's why. It was the most important thing in the first century Jewish world. 
there was nothing more central, more defining, more identifying to a first century Jew living in Galilee than their family. If family means a lot to us, it meant exponentially more to them. And knowing this, Jesus has chosen his words very carefully and precisely. And what he's saying is this. It's not just the evils of the world that can lure us away from a life following Christ. In fact, sometimes, and I'd argue oftentimes, especially in middle-class American Christianity in Cedar Mill, it's actually the really good, the really honorable, the the really uh, highly regarded things that can easily end up pushing and nudging us away from following Jesus. You see, it's the good things in our lives that we're most often more tempted to worship than the bad. We know the bad. We recognize the bad. We can see the bad. And sometimes the bad things eke into our lives. But not so subtly. Not as subtly as the good things. See, the Bible talks about idolatry. Taking anything in this world and placing it above God. Friends, an idol is anything that's higher in priority than Jesus in your life. Anything you are more committed to than Jesus is an idol. Anything you have not given over control of to Jesus is an idol. And here's the honest truth. Here's the honest truth that Jesus confronts us with in this passage. Families make great idols. Winning the approval of parents is an idol that almost everyone in this room can relate to at one point or another. Kids, I don't know if you've noticed this before, but kids make fantastic idols. Have you ever seen anyone make a child an idol, make a child the most important thing, the primary driving thing in their Life. Maybe you've even experienced this yourself as a child or even as a parent. Maybe even as a grandparent. Uh, I was recently watching this documentary on Netflix, which is sort of like the, God's gift to documentaries in the world. If you have Netflix, you can watch documentaries forever. You can waste your entire life experiencing nothing but experiencing everything on a very small screen. I like to watch documentaries on Netflix sometimes to a fault, but I recently watched this one called Trophy Kids. Extremely disturbing. It will like cure you of all your psycho sports woes. Um, it's about these series of, of kids, young people. Um, these two kids who play basketball, this high school guy who plays football, this girl who plays golf, these twins that play tennis. And what they have in common is they all have psycho sports parents. They have parents whose lives are completely focused and invested in trying to make their kids sports stars. And these parents are crazy, crazy. Now, you watch this show and it kind of gives you like you have a knot in your stomach the whole time. And you feel good about yourself in the sense that I think, at least I thought, I'm not nearly as bad as these people. Um, Because most of us won't go off the rails on this level. You know, personally, I have some psycho sports dad in me, but I keep him tucked way down deep where no one can see him but my wife sometimes, right? So he's tucked in there, nice and, nice and tight. But here's the honest truth. Maybe you're not a psycho sports parent, but here's the truth about you, and I know it's true, because it's true about me as well. It's quite easy to let some area 
of our lives operate outside of the rule and reign and control and lordship of Jesus. And what Jesus reminds us of here is that he doesn't want to just be one of your priorities. He wants to be the priority. He doesn't want to just be the driving force over the bad places in your life. He wants to be the driving force over all of your life. Every single inch of it. You see, if you think about your life uh, as a pie, if like a pie represents the totality of your life. Think about your favorite pie. For me, that would be like apple or lemon meringue or coconut cream or Boston cream. We could go on and on here. But, um, but if you think about your life as a pie... Sometimes what I think we do is that we're tempted to believe that being a follower of Jesus, being a disciple, is making Jesus the biggest piece of pie. But Jesus says, no. I do not want to be the biggest piece of pie in your life. I want to be your whole life. I want your whole pie. You see, what Jesus will say is, Family's important. Family's in the pie. But I'm in charge of the pie. I'm in charge of family. I'll guide and direct how you do family. School and grades are in the pie. But I'll guide and direct how you do school and grades. Friends are in the pie. But I'll direct how you live your life with friends and how you interact in relationships. Career's in the pie and dating's in the pie and your time and your schedule and your money and your recreation and your health. It's all in the pie. And Jesus says, I want to be Lord. I want to be master. I want to be in control of it all. Every single inch. You see, the challenge with just making Jesus one piece of the pie, even if he's an extremely big piece, even if he's half the pie, even if he's three quarters of the pie, the problem with that is this. There's some slices that he's not involved in. There's some slices that he doesn't have control over. And that's when success in school starts to lure you into cheating. Because it's that slice of your life. Right In that slice, good grades and uh, success and ranking in your class, those things are ultimate. And Jesus isn't a part of that. And so in that slice of your pie, you'll do anything to get what that piece of the pie demands. That's when long hours and burnout at work start to become the norm. Because in that slice of the pie, promotion is what really matters. It's when saving and spending for self starts to trump giving and sacrificing for others. Because in that slice of the pie, when it's not submitted to Jesus, pleasure and security are driving the conversation. And Jesus says, I want in on it all. I want to drive all the conversations. And maybe that sounds extreme. Maybe that sounds too intense. Maybe that sounds over the top. Maybe that sounds radical. Well, friends, welcome to what it means to be a disciple. To be a follower of Jesus. And so here's the question. Got any pieces of your pie not submitted to Jesus? Got any spheres where he is not actually in control of the conversation? Where he's not guiding your thoughts, your life, your actions, your feelings? Maybe it's your career. Maybe that's the slice that you've kept away from him. Maybe it's your job. Maybe it's your marriage. Maybe he's not calling the shots. In that place right now. Maybe it's your media life or your dating relationship or your attitude or response to something. Friends, what piece of the pie is Jesus asking for from you today? 
what would it look like to give it to him? That peace, that thing, that relationship, that moment, that sphere that you're thinking about right now. What would it look like to hand over control of that area of your existence to Jesus? What would he say? What would he change? You see, Jesus wants to be control of it all. He demands, he requires our complete and total surrender all the way down to the core, all the way down to the most important things in our world. For the Jews, it was family. For you, it may be something else. Jesus wants it all. Next, we see that following Jesus depends on our ultimate affections. Our heart, our emotion. And this is, this is maybe my favorite point of the morning. You see, Jesus in this passage, he uses some strange language. He uses some shocking language, actually. He says, if you come to me and you don't hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, such a person cannot be my disciple. This is the same God who says, love your enemies. This is the same God who says, honor your mother and your father. This is the same God who sets up the family as this core place to live out your faith. And now he says, unless you hate these people, you cannot come to me. We need to take a look at this word hate. Because Jesus can't seriously be asking us to hate our families, can he? Well, yes and no. In the Bible, the word hate has two different meanings. The way the Jewish people use the word hate, they use it two different ways. There can be active hate, there can be literal hate, but there can also be comparative hate. In other words, comparative hate says, I don't literally hate you, but when I compare how I feel about you with how I feel about this other person, comparatively, it feels like hate. This is sort of like Jesus speaking in hyperbole. Matt, Pastor Matt mentioned this a couple weeks ago. One of the best examples of this in the scriptures um, are from the book of Genesis and this guy named Jacob. And Jacob is sort of this... Weasley conniving Old Testament guy and he has two wives which is a problem we won't get into today but we may address later in our sexuality series but Jacob has like these two wives Rachel and Leah and when the Bible talks about how Jacob feels about Rachel and about Leah he says he loves one more than the other but but he loves them both but in other places it says this it says he loves Rachel but he hates Leah He says, Rachel I loved, but Leah I hated. Now, when the author of Genesis says this, it does not mean that he actually hates Leah. No, he's kind to Leah, he's cordial to Leah, he's even affectionate to Leah. But what's being said is this. Compared to how he loves Rachel, compared to his love for her, his affection for Leah feels like hate. And now we can see what Jesus is saying here. He's saying, if you want to follow me, if you want to be my disciple, then your affection and love for me must be so strong, so complete, so intense, so deep and all-consuming that even your greatest loves in this world feel like hate in comparison. There's a wonderful song that actually illustrates this very point. And uh, it's a song that was originally released by Percy Sledge, then by Bette Medler, and most recently by Michael Bolton. And if I'm going to reference a Michael Bolton song in church, I think you get bonus points. Right, Pastor Matt? I think I should. It's this song. When a man loves a woman. You know this one, don't you? 
spend his very last dime. Turn his back on his best friend if she, he puts her down. Right? What's he saying there? What's he talking about in this song? What he says in, in, in this song and in this line in particular is this. Right? Like, even my best friends, guys, my best buddies, my homeboys, when I compare how I feel about them to how I feel about this girl that I love and just met, it's like I hate them. It's like they don't even exist. They don't even matter anymore. And all of us guys have experienced this, haven't we? Our friends get a girlfriend. Like, remember this from high school or college? And then, like, they just fall off the face of the earth and you never see them again. That's how I was in high school when I met Amy. It was like, my friends never saw me for like four months. Why would I hang out with them when I could hang out with her? Right? My affection for her was so much greater than my affection for anyone else. When a man loves a woman, that's just what happens. And what Jesus is saying here is, that's how your affection for me should feel. It should be that much greater, that much more intense, that much, you should be that much more committed to it than anything else in the world. So the, the call of Jesus in this passage is not to literally hate your family, to be mean to your brothers and sisters and mom and dad, right? It's not, it's not to despise the world. It's not to even look down your nose at success or school or friendships or work. No, hear this. The goal is not to dim your affections for other things, but to increase your affections for Jesus. You see, Jesus wants to be the Rachel of your life. The one that you love with all of your heart and everything you are. And the problem for most of us isn't that we love anything in this world too much. It's simply that we love Jesus too little. You see, to be a Christian, to be a follower of Jesus, to be a disciple is not to say, start loving, hating, start hating the world, start loving things in this world less, which is how... Quite frankly, a lot of us approach our Christianity, right? But Jesus says, no, 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 no. Start to love me more and more. And then everything else will fall into place. So question, how in love with Jesus are you today? Where's your heart's affection for him? How do you feel about him? When we sing his name, we sing that song earlier, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. What is happening in your mind, in your soul, as you even speak his name? Spent any time with him lately? Have you sat and listened to him for a while? Have you read his word and let him speak to you? Have you Spent time talking to him about your life and your hopes and your dreams and your joys and your struggles and your challenges. You know, this past week, our our staff gathered on Wednesday and we spent some time just doing listening prayer. Just listening to God together and then talking about what we heard. And our staff is, is kind of like a giant small group, really, kind of a giant community group. And it gets pretty raw in there at times. And I would say this, the number one thing I heard from from our pastors and staff was... All of us said, I wish I had more time to spend with Jesus. I wish I just took more time to be with him and to fall in love with him. Because this world is busy and it's hectic and it's constantly pulling us away from our first love. You see, religion is about rules that lead you to God. 
following Jesus is about falling in love with him such that your life reflects his rules, such that your life starts to fall in line with his way of living. Do you love him so much that every other desire and ambition of your life pales in comparison? That's the love of a disciple. All right, following Jesus requires our complete surrender. Following Jesus depends on our ultimate affections. And now following Jesus demands our continuous sacrifice. Let's start with the sacrifice piece. Because what I really believe is this, this whole idea of carrying our cross in 21st century American Christianity, we've sort of made a catchphrase out of this and we've really cheapened it. You know, you'll hear people say things like, oh, that's just my cross to bear. Oh, these teenagers, I guess they're my cross to bear. You know, that guy who's tough to deal with at work, I guess he's my cross to bear. My husband, he's my cross to bear. This bum knee, I guess that's my cross to bear. This leaky roof. Friends, when Jesus says these words to this Galilean crowd, whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple, they heard anything but a pithy little saying about their daily struggles. That was the furthest thing from what they heard and what Jesus meant. This is not, life is hard and that's your cross to bear. These are people who had literally seen thousands of their countrymen crucified all up and down their roadsides. People who rebelled and paid the ultimate price, who hung there, rotting and dying, slow, painful, shameful, agonizing deaths. This crowd understands the shame and struggle and sacrifice that crucifixion entailed. You see, when Jesus talks about carrying one's cross, he's talking about purposefully and intentionally putting your life on the path of enormous sacrifice for the kingdom. These are not light and momentary troubles. This is entering the world as a follower, as an ambassador of God, as a carrier of the light, and facing massive resistance. Jesus is talking here about living and engaging the world in such a way that it's going to cost you something. It's going to hurt. It's going to hurt physically and relationally and emotionally and financially and socially. There is going to be sacrifice. And we're not to flee from it or run from it or pray that God would take it away. We're supposed to engage it, grab a hold of it, pursue it. And here's, here's the other thing that's revealing about this statement. Uh, when Jesus says, carry their cross and follow me, he says it in the present tense, which in Greek just simply means this. Uh, Jesus is literally saying, right now, carry your cross and then ev- for every moment moving forward. Right now and from here on out. Like this is not a, at some point I may have to carry my cross or I carried my cross way back then. This is a lifestyle, everyday living. The way we engage life in the world is supposed to be in this way. This sacrificial way where we die to self, where we grab the cross, where we engage the difficult places of life that the kingdom might move forward. You see, it's something that grows in us, friends. God says this, God says, give all of your life to me today, and then tomorrow I'll ask for a little more. Give all of your life to me today, and then tomorrow I'll ask for a little more. You see, as soon as you think you've given everything you've got, that you've laid it all on the line, Jesus will reveal to you that you haven't. And this will just continue. I love how Tim Keller talks about this. Here's what he says. This is a little graphic, but I thought it was really cool. He says, notice what's interesting. 
Jesus doesn't say, electrocute your old life. He doesn't say, put your old life in the electric chair. He doesn't say, hang your old life or put it before a firing squad. Because firing squads, hanging and electrocution are instantaneous. You're dead. That's it. One minute you're alive, the next minute you're dead. Crucifixion, on the other hand, is a slow death. It's gradual. When Jesus says, take up your cross, what he's saying is that he's ready to be patient. He's ready to walk this continuous journey of sacrifice with you from every day, every day moving forward. So what does following Jesus entail? What does discipleship really mean? It means complete surrender and ultimate affections and continuous sacrifices. And now Jesus says, With that being the definition of what it means to follow me, how should we consider this call? How should we consider the invitation to follow Christ? Suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Won't you first sit down and estimate the cost to see if you have enough money to complete it? For if you lay the foundation and are not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule you, saying, this person began to build and wasn't able to finish. Jesus is actually using humor here. In this whole next section, this is like stand-up comedy with Jesus. He's saying, imagine somebody launching into a major construction project, and they never even stop to ask themselves the question, how much is this going to cost? Have you ever seen anyone do this? Have you ever seen the government do this before? And things just go on and on. Some of you are thinking of examples. I shared one in the first service, and I don't I don't think it went too well, so I'll just leave it out. Um, and then halfway through, they run out of money, and now this thing just sits there. This project just sits there, half finished, and it's going to sit there forever as a monument to their lack of commitment and their lack of perseverance and their lack of planning. It's just like an embarrassment, and people are going to laugh at this guy. Everyone's going to laugh. Everybody will say, this guy is a few tacos short of the combination plate. You'd have to be a pretty dim bulb to pull something like that, Jesus says. And now the crowd's kind of chuckling. Yeah, yeah, that would be real stupid. And then Jesus says, don't do that with your life. Don't do the same thing with your life. First, sit down. Take some time. That phrase, first sit down, it's the repeated phrase in this passage. He says it twice. And what he's driving at here is this first question that he wants everyone to ask when they are considering, should I be a disciple? Should I follow Jesus? He says, ask yourself, can I afford to do this? Am I willing to go all the way? Am I willing to pay the price? Can I make the commitment? Am I able to embrace the sacrifice involved in being a follower of Jesus? Or, or am I going to get halfway down the road and realize I want out? There is no out. No one gets out of crucifixion. No one gets halfway down the road of carrying their cross and turns to the Roman soldiers and goes, You know, this isn't really working for me. It's a little like... The wood's a little more splintery than I thought it would be. No, there is no halfway point. Consider it before you start down the road. John Stott, the famous theologian, writes this in Basic Christianity. I, this, is, this is a little bit of a thick quote, and I didn't share it in the first service, but you guys seem more awake than them, so I'm giving you extra. Here we go. He's, he, he writes this. The Christian landscape is strewn with the wreckage of derelict, half-built towers, the ruins of those who began to build and were unable to finish. For thousands of people still ignore Christ's warning and undertake to follow him without first pausing to reflect on the cost of doing so. 
This is the great scandal of Christendom, so-called nominal Christianity. In countries to which the Christian civilization has spread, large numbers of people have covered themselves with a decent but thin veneer of Christianity. They've allowed themselves to become somewhat involved, enough to be respectable, but not enough to be uncomfortable. Their religion, he says, is a great soft cushion. It protects them from the hard unpleasantness of life while changing its place and shape to suit their very convenience. No wonder, he writes, the cynics speak of hypocrites in the church and dismiss religion as escapism. You see, Jesus says, can I afford to do this? Stop, sit down, count the cost, consider what the offer really is. And then he actually proposes the opposite question. That's question one. He says, you should ask if you are thinking about being a disciple. Then he said, here comes question two. And to talk about question two, Jesus actually dives into some current events and he's still being somewhat tongue-in-cheek, a little bit humorous here. You see, in Jesus' day, there was this guy named Herod Antipas. We talked about him a few weeks ago. He's the Roman ruler in Galilee where Jesus is. And the story with Herod is this. He's been in the tabloids recently. I know it's hard to believe that a government official could possibly end up in the tabloids, but it happened in Jesus' day. And here's what went down. Herod's first marriage was basically a political marriage. He married the daughter of the king of Nabataea, and this was Herod's nearest political rival. Like this king is like Herod's main rival, this very powerful king. And Herod basically marries his daughter to keep from being overthrown, to keep from being attacked by this very powerful king. But then what happens is this. Herod falls in love with another woman. She's quite a quite famous woman in the Bible, actually. She's been talked about in the Gospel of Luke before. Her name was Herodias. Herodias happens to be Herod's brother's, uh, his brother Philip's wife, But that doesn't stop Herod, it doesn't stop Herodias. They both divorce their spouses and they get married. They marry each other. And this decision poses a lot of problems for Herod. Problems on a number of levels, not the least of which is this. When Herod divorces the little girl of his most powerful enemy, his now ex-father-in-law declares war on him. So they go to battle. Herod brings 10,000 soldiers to the fight, but his father-in-law brings 20,000 soldiers and smokes him. It's a humiliating defeat. Herod loses everything. Herod is never the same after this moment. His rule sputters and spurts like into nothingness after this huge, enormous defeat. Now listen, listen, listen to the words of Jesus in this passage. Or suppose, he says, a king is about to go to war against another king. Won't he first sit down? Recognize that? And consider whether he is able with 10,000 men to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000. If he is not able, he will send a delegation while the other is still a long way off and will ask for terms of peace. In the same way, those of you who do not give up everything you have cannot be my disciples. Do you see what Jesus is saying here? He's referencing this very current event that everybody knows about to make a point. He's saying this, don't be like Herod. Don't be as stupid as Herod. Herod, because of pride and selfishness and greed and stubbornness, was unwilling to surrender to this opposing king, even though he was outmanned. Instead, he decides to fight to maintain control, 
to keep control of his own region, of his own life. You see, Herod, in his attempt to keep everything, ends up what? Losing everything. Because Herod refuses to surrender, he ends up ultimately losing it all. And Jesus is offering this question back to the crowd. He says, can you afford to do this? Can you afford to become a disciple? Can you afford to follow me? But also, but also ask the second question. Can you afford to not do this? Can you handle the consequences and the implications of deciding to follow me? Also, can you handle the the consequences and the implications of deciding not to follow me? He says, think it through from both angles. You see, what Jesus understands and knows is this. If you really think it through, you will see there is a high price. There's a lot of cost. There's some struggle and difficulty and strain to following him. But if you look down the road, if you look long term, here's what you'll discover. Not following him, deciding to try and retain control yourself, keep pieces of your pie to, uh, like, you know, under your own auspices and control, that actually long term ultimately ends up to be worse. Devastating, in fact. Awful. Because guess what? The things that you'll follow instead of Jesus are not things that will bring joy and peace and satisfaction and meaning and purpose and a wholeness and grace. The abundant life will never be found. And in the end, what will happen is you will lose. You will be devastated. You will, your life will end up destroyed. Can you afford to not do this? So Jesus asks, how should we consider following Jesus? How should we consider this call, this invitation to being a disciple? And he says, ask yourself these questions. Can I afford to do this? Can I afford not to do this? And then he says, why? Why? Why is this careful consideration so important? Verse 34. Salt is good, he says, but if it loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is fit neither for the soil nor for the manure pile. It is thrown out. Two things, and we're going to be quick on these final points. Salt was an extremely important resource in the ancient world. It was used for all sorts of things, primarily for the preservation of food, but it was one of the most valuable things you owned, one of the most valuable things you would have. It was used sort of like money because it was so valuable. Here's another thing that's true about salt. Salt is salt. Sodium chloride is always sodium chloride. It is like physically impossible. Like ask someone who's a chemist to take sodium chloride and have it no longer be sodium chloride. Salt losing its saltiness is not a thing. It can't happen. It's impossible. So what is Jesus talking about here? Well, here's the interesting fact. There were several different sources... Um, in first century Palestine of where people would get their salt from. And one of the primary sources was the Dead Sea. And the salt that was harvested out of the Dead Sea was often extremely severely compromised with uh, an element called gypsum, right? They didn't know it was gypsum back then, but we do now. In other words, it looked like salt. It tasted like salt for a while, but it wasn't really salt. It was an imposter. It was a phony. It was a fake. And over time, it would lose its saltiness. 
revealing, revealing the fact that it was inauthentic from the very beginning. It was a phony. And so what people in ancient Israel would do is that when they discovered they had one of these bad batches of, of phony salt, is they would throw it out onto the roadway and people would walk over it. And Jesus talks about this in other places in the gospel. But here's what Jesus is saying. He's saying, consider real carefully if you can or cannot fully commit to following me because, because there is no fooling or faking your way as a follower of Jesus. There's no way to fake it. If you get halfway in, if you get partially in, and then just decide, you know what, I'm just going to sort of put on a veneer, put on a discipleship sort of cloak, kind of just play the part and just sort of like, you know, meander my way through. He says, that's not going to work. Imitation discipleship, phony followership, a partial commitment will not cut it in the kingdom. It will be discovered, it will be found out, and you will be thrown out. This is why careful consideration is so important. There is no faking it when it comes to following Jesus. You're either with him, you're either following him, you're either a disciple who is growing in self-sacrifice and engaging, giving your life for the kingdom, or, or your phony, fake, imitation, inauthentic salt. So stop and decide, stop and consider, which one will you be? If you're not really going to follow Jesus, don't waste your time. It seems so harsh. It seems so cut and dry. And yet, it's what Jesus has to say. So here's what we've learned so far. What does following Jesus entail? It entails complete surrender and ultimate affections and continuous sacrifice. How do we consider this this invitation? We say, can I afford to do this? And can I afford not to do this? And then we're real um, interested in why this is important. Because phony followers will not be received. And then finally, finally, Jesus ends with... Who is this consideration for? Who is Jesus even asking this question to? Will you come be one of my disciples? Will you come follow? And so far, this has been a fairly honest teaching by Jesus, right? This is challenging. This is bristling, almost offensive. It's very, very demanding. But in the end, Jesus, true to form, closes the way we would expect him to close. Here's how he closes this this section. He says, whoever has ears to hear, let them hear. This is just a, a little phrase that Jesus uses often throughout the Gospels, and it's used in a few different ways. But here, what Jesus is saying is, if you're open to hearing, if you're open to listening, if you're open to receiving, this invitation is for you. Hear what I'm really saying. Hear what following me is really all about. And then you are welcome to join in. Eugene Peterson um, translates this little verse this way. He says, are you listening to this? Are you really listening? You see, at the end of this passage, Jesus says, the call, the offer The gift of a life following me is for anyone who will receive it. And it's offered again to you today. You can be a follower of Jesus. You can still again today decide again in this moment, I want to carry my cross. I want to follow him. I want to live a life for him. I want to turn over the pie of my life, some of the slices that I've been hoarding for myself, I want to turn them over to his rule and control. That offer is always there. And friends, what we're reminded of is that Jesus can be trusted with our lives because he gave his life for us. That's why when we come to the table, we come not just to remember what Jesus did for us, but to remember the example 
he gives to us. This life of sacrifice, of giving ourselves, carrying our cross for the kingdom, for the world, for the other. And so this morning, we're going to give you a chance to do that again. To just decide again today. I'm a follower of Jesus. I want to follow. I want to be a disciple. I want to turn over more and more of my life to him. And so here's what I want to ask you to do this morning. Pastor Jerry's going to come up and he's going to play some soft music. The tables are going to open. You can come down, get your elements, have a seat. We're going to receive them together in just a minute. But spend a few minutes and just consider these few questions. What area, what part, what section of your life do you need to surrender or re-surrender to Jesus today? Second, have you made finding time to be in love with Jesus a priority in your schedule? What would it look like to make time to fall in love with Jesus and give him all of your affections? And then finally, where might God be asking you to carry your cross and engage kingdom advancing sacrifice. Where in your life has he called you to just set aside your own life and your own priorities and your own pleasures and comforts and advancement to just partner with him in pushing the kingdom forward, even when it's hard? I just invite you, ask these questions, invite the Holy Spirit to, to speak to your soul and give you answers. And when you're ready, you can. Grab your elements and bring them back to the seat and we'll declare our commitment to follow Jesus as a community again together in just a moment. So take the time you need. The tables are open.